hello again. Good to see everyone. Uh, we are down to our last session, sadly. Um, but in some ways, good, if you think about it. Uh, we shouldn't have an infinite number of primary doubt talking points that get in the way of full-on Christian commitment or implementation or uh, activity or yielding to the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but today we are closing down this section and going to begin a new uh, section that will be not recorded, but I'll video record uh, another version, a private version of these uh, to be linked off on the gifts and expressions of the Holy Spirit. I've been working for the past about two months on this. Pretty excited about the project. It's going to be anywhere between eight and ten sessions, video components, uh, interactive PowerPoint, and uh, I'm using, I think at last check, about 18 different major sources, resources, uh, from some of the brightest Christian scholars and pneumatologists around, but we'll save that for later. <laughs> for now, it's just um, <clears throat> great. I hope this has been helpful. I've gotten a lot of great feedback from all of you uh, on the th this, uh, this series, again, that we modeled on uh, the great Michael Kruger, uh, president of Reformed uh, Seminary up in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina on his, uh, his suggestion and what he did for his, uh, his Sunday school class is kind of a fill-in in between that uh, literally it's not prudent to get to these, the depth and the analysis of these issues from the pulpit, given the limited amount of time from the pulpit to exposit the word. And you can only, you only have so much audio and attention real estate and that sort of thing. But this is like any other good Sunday school is supposed to be an augment and a little bit of deep, a deeper dive to make evangelism easier here in Myth or Messiah. So today's is probably our last and most complex doubt catalyst. Um, and it comes from people, again, from, you know, they've been, we've done, these could largely be categorized into two different camps. One that uh, doubts that affect Christians, early Christians, and then mature Christians and then doubts that affect non-believers uh, about Christianity and make them reticent or reluctant to accept the Christian faith. So the topic today is, what do I do if Christianity just isn't working for me? Or to put it another way, how do you respond, and, and this could be a subcategory of another one, the disappointment with Christianity or with Christians, and it's even more profound because it's dealing in some way, another way of saying, what do you do when someone's disappointed in God? So, uh, so this isn't necessarily a problem of evil or disappointment per se, but how do you handle, I'll put the question right to you. How do you handle someone who says uh, something like this? I, Christianity just isn't working for me anymore or has not worked for me. Uh, this is, again, after somebody who apparently or at least allegedly has tasted and seen and they have not found it good or satisfying. Um, so let's think about this, again, from another angle, not to confuse anything, but think of it this way. Imagine somebody who just became a believer saying this. Before they get to it's not working for me, they say something like this. You ask them, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And somebody says something like this, I follow Christianity because it offers the potential for the most fulfilling experience on, amongst humans. I'll say it again. Someone, Let's say somebody, before they get to this doubt catalyst, before they say Christianity isn't working for me, they say something like this. You ask them, why do you follow 
Christianity or why do you serve God in this way, in the, in the prescribed way in which we yield to God through, through Christ and through his Holy Spirit? What if somebody says, well, the reason I follow Christianity and its prescriptions and teachings and follow Jesus is because it offers them the best shot at the most happy and satisfying life. Now, this should both sit odd with you and make you uncomfortable, but also be something that you wouldn't immediately reject out of hand. So this is why this is far and away the most complex subject we're going to cover. And it should end this way because we are dealing with doubt across the spectrum. Uh, Catalyst of doubts are your greatest fears and doubts. So I wanted you to think about responses to this sort of thing. On the one end, somebody saying Christianity just doesn't work for me. We'll work on that in a little bit. But also if somebody says, well, the reason I follow Christianity is it offers the, the best potential. The reason this sits odd, if you, if you, again, just think and meditate on it for a moment, is because it is both true and at least has the seeds of a diseased view in it. What do I mean by that? Well, <clears throat> we're supposed to come to Christianity because it is true. Because it is true, and that means that the, the ideas uh, and, the, and the statements match, have a matchup or a correspondence with reality. But if somebody says, I follow Christianity because, look, it's just it's the best path forward while on this planet, and ultimately, isn't it the best path forward if we're going to last longer than the stars in the sky in the eternal realm when we pass over? Uh, doesn't it provide benefits? Uh, the answer is yes. But when someone leads with their primary motivation being what can I get out of it, it's extremely, it, 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 makes, it puts people on their heels because it looks, it, it, it rides that very interesting line between self-interest and selfishness. And someone saying, having a natural, healthy uh, self-concern uh, uh, versus uh, a a kind of a a pathological uh, s- selfish self-centered uh, uh, you know uh, a me first mentality um, you know what what can I get out of it and, and if you have trouble understanding this you can get the same sort of thing when somebody goes from having a general self-interest I don't know if you I've, I've probably mentioned this before but um, one of the more interesting studies, I believe, out of the University of Michigan, or it could have been from one of those uh, bellwether, uh, consistently at the forefront uh, of doing sociological and psychological polling and study on either coast, whether you're talking about Stanford uh, out on the uh, West Coast or University of Virginia on the East Coast, but I think this was University of Michigan, where they, they, they had a poll that said that a very high percentage of women say they would marry and, and, and commit to marriage across the board, across uh, different commitments, across the board if they were in love with the person, they, had, they felt love. Uh, and then they polled the same group and very, very few of them said they would marry anyone without a job. Now, if you automatically think that's terrible greed or an indictment on a woman's nature rather than prudence or wisdom, uh, that uh, part of being married is making a home together and each partner bringing in resources and even resources that aren't necessarily physical um, and, and, and 
performing roles in a way that's excellent uh, with all sorts of expectation and, uh, and evaluation. Um, but if you automatically call that girl, now notice how close that could be to calling all those women in that Michigan study gold diggers. Um, or, or the worst kind of pejorative about a woman who, you know, kind of like uh, those, those uh, not quite yet models uh, at Hugh Hefner's house that acted like they loved him uh, in order to stay at that mansion, expand and afford their, their perverse career, and then uh, continue on. So th there, there is a fine line between self-interest and self-centeredness, uh, between a, a selfish uh, approach to life, a me-first approach to life, and an, a, a normal self-concern. And the reason this is important to make this distinction, even though it's complex and the line is very, very close, is because it's if you don't understand that you'll you'll take it and run with it and go in whatever direction uh you want there there it's god calls this life a gift that means you pursuing the things that bring uh satisfaction and positive outcomes is not a bad thing in and of itself it's a good thing um, the, the, what's really crucial is the way in which you think of and pursue those goods and what you're willing to sacrifice for them. So I think a way to, again, and if you're concerned that, oh, the line's too close, you know, it, it, the, the easy path to take is to say they're just basically one and the same, which just isn't the case. You know, there's also, here's an, an analogy, there's also a really fine line between what we know is confidence and arrogance, a, 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 putrid, uh, uh, you know, really extraordinarily off-putting arrogance versus a confidence. Um, this is one of the difficulties in understanding what the Bible means by Holy Spirit-empowered boldness, but then also understanding that that has, that has to include gentleness and respect, i.e. that Peter's admonition in 1 Peter 3.15, especially when you're giving a hope, a reason for the hope you have within you. So one of the ways forward here is to think about this, to qualify Jesus' statements. Jesus promised life in the abundant, right? He had promised uh, that he had the living water that would make us never thirst again. Um, but maybe the best scenario to understand this and keep the Holy Spirit balance that's so enormously difficult for humans prone to fallen nature extremes or fall, a fallen world extremes with the, what... Uh, some scholars have called fallen world gravity to pull us away from our, our highest hopes and blessed aspirations. Blessed aspirations is Jesus, quote, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Notice he doesn't get rid of the word yoke or burden there, but he says there if you come to him in, in humility and repentance, um, those, those burdensome things can become lighter. They bec become not only manageable but blessed. Uh, I think of uh, the, the, the quote that God's constraints are our freedom. They are our greatest freedom. There's a reason why there's certain constraints around certain things. And again, we see this as well. Constraint isn't always or, or disciplining yourself or stopping yourself from doing one thing that you may desire st more strongly than another is not a bad thing. It actually releases you to have further freedoms uh, that are far more satisfying and long-lasting and more enduring and positive and, 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 and strong in the future. Take one of the easiest examples. Uh, 
getting excellent at a musical instrument. Those are one of the easiest examples out there. In order to get excellent and to enjoy contributing in an excellent way and having people enjoy what you are giving them to a higher degree, you're going to have to constrain yourself with practice and repetition over and over again to bring mastery. You will only get the enjoyment and the elation from that level of contribution and that level of hopefully commensurate reciprocal appreciation if you constrain yourself and do a lot of things you don't necessarily feel like doing over and over and over and over again. Repetition brings mastery regardless uh, of, of, of the subject or the activity. That's the way the world is constituted by God. So I wanted to move from there and just say, okay, so we want to keep a balance here. Uh, we would want to say, on the one hand, uh, that shouldn't be your primary motivation is what you can get out of it. But it's uh, it's certainly okay to see that, that Christianity is attractive if you keep the, the motivations in the right order. Uh, it, it, so, for example, uh, there's nothing wrong with enjoying a blessing of God. But if you're coming to him simply to find a way to work the blessing out of him, uh, then you've got the whole thing upside down. Uh, and, and that will not lead to the type of blessing that you want. In fact, it will lead to Satan using that blessing as, a, as an idol in your life and you ending up in a situation uh, like, like the, the, the likes of which Augustine pointed out, the great genius St. Augustine of Hippo, Augustine Aurelius when he said that our, our loves get disordered very, very quickly when you don't keep them in proper order. Or as the song says, when you get too focused on the blessing and forget in, in both functional and theoretical ways your blesser. The happiest pulled place in the world is Finland. This was as of 20, I think 2018, uh, pre-COVID for sure. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, the United States of America, uh, arguably the most resource-rich uh, culture in human history, uh, was not in the uh, top, I don't believe it's in the current, uh, in 2018 was in the top 10, but I'm sure it wasn't in the top five happiest polled places in the world. Um, this is also troubling because Christianity is uh, also the primary religion here. This is the place where the, the high... Again, America is the most Christianized country in human history. Uh, the vast majority of our 330 million plus here in this country claim a, uh, a Christian worldview allegiance. Uh, and we are not in the top five or top ten happiest. In fact, we are fairly strong in the uh, unhappy or very unhappy or depressed categories. There's been an epidemic of anxiety, suicidal ideation, major clinical depression and addiction, dissipation. Um, so how is this connected? Well, it's easy to see how someone in that scenario uh, that hasn't gotten the deliverables in the way they thought they would out of their Christian commitment. Again, we have to make sure we've calibrated those expectations biblically. But that's, that's an issue, right? That's an issue. Shouldn't it be the case that the Christians are some of the happiest, smartest, best adjusted, 
at least when polled against our more secularized neighbors. Uh, again, there's so many factors that go into this, but the idea is this. Uh, one is to re- remember some of the things were, that are up against us when it comes to that key verb, work. Christianity isn't working for me. Or uh, the Christianity is no longer appealing or keeping that that uh, you know that idea in the forefront that I'm only here for Christianity's benefits, which tends to undermine the reception or the proper reception, interpretation, and and then re-gifting of those benefits out to other people. So one of the problems we want to be aware of in this, uh, as we discuss this, is the problem, the error of understanding God. It's very, very common error. Consumerist Christianity. Uh, the error of understanding God, Yahweh, uh, Jesus, our Lord, as a cosmic butler or a lotto ticket or a, and, uh, you know, a, a great ATM in the sky. Um, God's primary purpose is not to bless us and make us from an earthly perspective, better at our, on our timetable and at our desire and in the way we, we prescribe to him. Uh, the second problem is we live in a culture that encourages us to make our personal experiences, feelings, and perspectives the determiner of truth rather than truth being something we can see connects to reality that truth being a, what we call, the philosophers call it a transitive relationship, a connecting, a matching up, a matching up between an idea and the reality uh, that the uh, idea uh, it posits, that this is really something that is exists real and it's independent of me and that matchup uh, is there whether I, whether I make the connection or not. Um, we know that self-interest, uh, God-ordained self-interest is proper why? Because, again, God calls our lives a gift. But self-centeredness and selfishness is immoral. So, again, uh, we're, we are to think of uh, our lives as a gift of God. Um, there is, uh, it's okay to want, uh, in, in an in a indirect and vague sense, of the positive outcomes. Um, th- those are... Those aren't bad things in and of themselves. They're generally good things. Uh, but again, this is not, again, to keep it in proper perspective and proper order. Remember, we believe in Christianity and, and it works for us because we believe it's true. And it is our, it, uh, it, it, it is proper and fitting and, and a, a match with reality that we give God his due and give God uh, glory as a maximally great being. But what if somebody comes from the other end of the spectrum? And, and there, there is another side of this complexity here that says following Jesus does make your life more meaningful, satisfying, and purposeful. That's another difficulty here. You know, even the secularists admit this now. I don't know if you know this. We've talked about the turn in our class before in, in philosophy. You know, philosophy professors are supposed to dive down deeper, stay down longer, and come up for air less often with the more the the the, the toils and snares of complex thought. And there's been an, uh, ad- admitted by uh, leading lights in philosophical circles, bemoaned by secularists that they no longer have the deadlock on 
uh, that atheists no longer have the deadlock on philosophy courses. In fact, there's a significantly strong and growing number of Christian theists and general theists that can argue quite ably for their position and against a materialist, naturalist, atheist outlook. The other discipline in the academy that's having to do a slow but sure about-face over the last 30 years is the, the discipline of psychology. Um, as we've discussed before, psychology for years uh, was dominated not by a Jungian outlook, but a Freudian outlook that framed Christianity and religion as unnecessarily and malignantly repressive to human desires and therefore made uh, for a more, much more unpleasant world from making a Christian more repressed, nasty, and impatient all the way to making him bloodthirsty. Um, this thesis has largely been debunked um, by uh, uh, polling data and research done uh, in what we'd call in the area of human flourishing and well-being. And now that's not just not the case. Um, there is certainly a uh, positive mental and physical and, and experiential and existential benefit to pursuing uh, God through Christ. Um, even in meta-studies that take a trajectory of uh, what's the general trajectory, a general outcome from this, these 30 or these 100 or these 150 studies over this many, this X span of years, finds that Christianity is an extraordinary catalyst for deep satisfaction. You can find this uh, even um, confusing the, the, the authors of the conglomerative book, D Depression for Dummies, Smith and Elliot, uh, that, the, in that Dummies series. They're stymied by the fact that... Uh, a, an authentic Christian implementation um, ensures um, a, a, a plethora of positive life outcomes over and over and over again. The Freudian thesis has died over and over again uh, when when the research has come in and people stop uh, working from a, a, a Freudian paradigm uh, of interpretation. So uh, there is a greatness and a wonder and a delight in communion with our Maker that's proper, that should have positive out, outcomes and benefits. If uh, our maker made us to find our rest and, and find satisfaction in him, in relationship with him, uh, this is going to have positive outcomes and, and benefits. But here's the big caveat, the giant one, just like with anything, the balance. This doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be easy, that you, it's going to be an easy thing that comes on your timetable. Uh, following God and pursuing God through Christ does not alleviate all hardship and suffering. And this is going to be the constant theme running through this. And the, ba ba the one of the more basic things we push back on when somebody says Christianity isn't working and we ask more, you know, uh, probing questions. Eternal deliverance from sin and reconciliation with God and reconnection is, let's be honest, it's priceless. It's invaluable. I've often said that if people had more of a stronger solitude and focus on the promise of heaven and reconciliation, uh, it would serve as a stronger catalyst to protect you from even fallen world uh, results of depravity, uh, like depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. In other words, even, even in the worst case scenario, you could always comfort yourself by saying, heaven's in the purview. Reconciliation in the purview. Even some hardcore, very loud European atheists have admitted as much and said that the best thing in your arsenal 
is the thing that sometimes keeps us up at night. And that is the idea that human life doesn't end at the grave, that there is life beyond the grave, and that all of our things that we find most important here last on and continue into eternity, that even the things we find most moving to us are love relationships, these skeptics say. The idea that uh, you will be a personality forever and outlast, outlast the... Uh, outlast the stars you look out in the sky at night. Um, again, C. Clay Jones' book, Immortality, brilliant, brilliant book. Um, uh, not immorality, immortality, but uh, but in there you find that the the great lengths, the mental gymnastics, atheists jump the hurdles they jump through to keep themselves tranquilizing themselves of the trivial to stop reminding themselves of this, and when then open and honest ones will admit this is the greatest thing in the Christian arsenal. It's funny. This is what the Bible, it's not funny, it's ironic, this is what the Bible says as well, that Jesus defeated mankind's greatest enemy across all time and space, which is death, mortality uh, itself. The, the grand enemy of our soul uses death. There's a, a, a number of, of current research projects that indicate that really what, what all anxiety, depression, addiction, suicidal, all these ideations are over a fear of death. And the consequences or the uh, the entailments of living or attempting to live a life where you know deep in your knower somehow, some way, that you don't have eternity in the purview. And that all your hopes and dreams will die with you when you die. And every minute that goes by after your death is a minute closer to you being forgotten in oblivion. And the collective temple of mankind's achievement, as Bertrand Russell says, is destined to die in the heat death of the universe under a debris of a universe in ruins. So... Um, so again, these are things that uh, that uh, are strongly represented, and that's why it said Jesus defeated our greatest enemy. But this does not mean, again, a repair of all your temporal failings. In other words, your big consequence, uh, death is defeated, the sting's taken out, its bite's gone uh, for the Christian. But uh, it doesn't mean that the smaller consequences along the way are all alleviated as well. You're still going to deal with the consequences and entailments of the fallen and godless and God-ignoring or God-rebelling decisions you've made up to this point. Not all consequences are erased, but the gracious, most important consequences erased, which should inform all your strivings through other consequences. Or as Mother Teresa said, and I know the dangers of of quoting her with all of her issues uh, through her ministerial life, or largely laudable ministerial life, in Calcutta, and that's in the in the final analysis, even a life buffeted with suffering, suffused with suffering, will be seen in the light of eternity as no more than a an inconvenient night in an inconvenient hotel room. So we want to be be sure we we remember and understand that. Um, uh, well, what if someone comes to you and says, you know, Mulva Hill, or to you and says, you know. But what if Christianity is no longer satisfying to me? It's not working for me anymore. Remember, you want to get to that crucial definition of the word work. What do you mean by works? And we said there's a danger in putting the benefits of Christianity before the truth of it, um, not only to get those benefits, but to handle them properly. But you also want to say, look, you know, we need to talk about this. It's really important, you know, again, you want to ask more and more questions. We say that's the best way to approach this sort of thing. But when postmoderns say they care less about truth and more about what they find fulfilling, what works for them, 
We need to be sure we have something to say in response to that sort of thing. So again, it's more about uh, what they get out of it. Do I get something out of this or not? Um, but rather, you know, again, not necessarily focused on truthfulness, uh, correspondence, veracity, or anything like that. Um, so they've severed truth, or have at least attempted to sever truth from satisfaction. Um, uh, and that something is their particular desire or desires. So you want to get at what they mean by work, and then what they mean by uh, God, you know, bestowing these sort of things on them, or what they mean by, was it working before? Uh, what do they mean by working now? Um, you know, maybe they find uh, their Christian life has fallen short of where they wanted to be at this point. Or maybe they've been through a long spell where God has seemed silent. Or as C.S. Lewis said, where the heavens seemed like it was brass or there's a door shut in the face in prayer. But let me give you some examples of why modern people might find Christianity at least initially or at some point in their walk have a dry, what they call a, quote, dry time, unfulfilling and disappointing, and why that shouldn't immediately, if you know the word and know anything about God's general revelation along with this special, shouldn't mean you jettison it immediately. The first is uh, we have a culture that uh, the, the dominant idol of the culture is a rejection of all authority and hierarchy, and self-denial is out. Uh, self-expression is in. Uh, self-sacrifice is out. Self-assertion is in. Um, but we live in a fundamentally resistant-to-authority culture. And why is that important? Because Christianity can be very disappointing when you have authorities that are rightful in your life in, a, in an array of them, requiring different uh, responsibilities and roles, right? Uh, Martin Luther summed up his entire sanctification and holiness perspective in one sentence, and it's this. He said more about it than this, but he said, you are not your own. If your bodies and souls and minds were designed by some being other than you, and that being currently wants to be in relationship with you, that means he knows you better than you know yourself. Another reason a modern person might feel Christianity unfulfilling or disappointing is no more being able to do anything you want. And there are certain things that our culture highlights as specific uh, anti-Bible, anti-nature, anti-design experiences that they feel they'll miss out. I know we got so many acronyms these days from POTUS, President of the United States, to SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States, to now FOMO, fear of missing out. And there is a fear of missing out on experiences that they think would be really, really important or deeply satisfying experiences that come with an allegiance to the Christian message. Three, uh, there there may be a a, a, an un, there's always an unfulfilling aspect to different forms of persecution or suffering or hardship, uh, all the way from not fitting in, fear of missing out, the personal relationships with non-believers and some of the things they talk about and do, all the way to the per, the physical persecution, like we see with uh, some uh, Muslims against Christians in other uh, second and third world uh, settings that there is an actual physical persecution that is extremely difficult to deal with, or watching someone else suffer, like, uh, again, like Teresa did in Calcutta with her Carmelite nuns, all the way to just not fitting in. People want to know and be known, and they want to fit in, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, of difficulty for Christians in realizing that sticking to Christian convictions is not only difficult and requires constant yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit, um, and it's a slow process, 
but that it'll make you what uh, some people call low status these days. It's, uh, there's been a social turn in our country where uh, only certain other Christians view other Christians as high status. The others see it as a, as a status negating scenario where you know you don't you're not you're not getting some of the outcomes you want socially or uh, you know or vocationally as well number four you cannot focus or concentrate this is a big one um, God is an invisible being it is hard for people that have been just barraged with naturalism the only thing that's real is that which you can pick up with your five senses that which is in some way made of matter or resonates from matter so um, so for people that have a short attention span, that can't focus, to have a relationship with an invisible being to us on this side of eternity is enormously difficult. And that means your prayer life will suffer. That means you also won't go into reflection or solitude or thinking mode to think about this fact. The most important things in our world are invisible things. Your soul, your mind, your memories, your ideas. Ideas are the most powerful things on the planet. History, number, value, good or evil, right or wrong, of meaning, purpose. These are all things not made up of, of matter in different configurations or, or uh, subatomic particles uh, whirring around. These are things that are immaterial by definition and therefore extraordinarily important. But you can't think of those things if you are what's called a sensate culture, if you're the great Russian sociologist Pitrim Sorokin. He said, uh, sensate cultures that, that obsess over physicality, like Russia attempted to do, become cultures that can't last and they can't, they're not thick cultures that allow for a supernatural and immaterial realm to be an important realm. Even thinking of something like uh, your ability to do abstract thought, to run hypotheticals in your mind so that you can experiment on things without having to literally set the experiment up and watch the whole thing work out. If you, have, if you lack focus, lack attention, and lack an appreciation of things that are invisible, then you're going to be extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily disappointed in Christianity because that means minimally your prayer life will suffer and you won't, uh, you, you won't get wisdom and understanding at a deeper level. Uh, last, not focusing on Thanksgiving or being a gratitude-starved individual. Uh, we can see the groundbreaking work Robert Emmons did in this area. Robert Emmons is the, the, the wonderful disciple of USC's uh, granddaddy philosophy professor, the late Dallas Willard, who did his work at the University of California uh, in the psychology of gratitude, $3 million research effort, and then his uh, more uh, lay-level book called Thanks. In it, he says some of the things that erode character and erode mental well-being, like jealousy, envy, and entitlement, are impossible if you're authentically living with an insistent position on gratitude over and over again when you're living in a in a thankful mode. You can't have authentic gratitude and entitlement, envy, and jealousy in extreme or intense emotions at the same time. Um, so I, I think the big one too is the fact that Christianity does not, the big issue here is Christianity does not produce instantly instantly the results it purports. It's not instant desired results, including the desire for heaven. Um, it just doesn't do that. Um, and we know this, and this is something God's given to almost every culture uh, in general revelation or common grace throughout history, that true change is slow. True change is slow. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, 
we had a gentleman you probably remember from our Sunday school class some years ago. He was a retired engineer that was a Muslim convert uh, from Egypt that naturalized over here. Married a sweet woman named Beth Farid. Sammy Farid was his name. They helped uh, start our home missions initiative. Um, brilliant man. And Sammy, I can remember us going back and forth when I first started the, the class or the course. Um, started saying he was real. He always had a real strong disappointment in prayer because prayer for him did not work in the same way certain chemicals reacted together immediately or certain physical realities worked together like a fulcrum uh, or you know gravity acting on, on weight and mass. And I said, but Sammy, you know there's all sorts of other intervening variables that make it, and it's not just an excuse, um, but that's why a mature Christian needs to have a really robust theology of unanswered prayer. Uh, uh, not only a strong prayer life, but it, it knowing when God's silent and you know knowing how to interpret that and assimilate that and process it. But I told Sammy, it's not, you know prayer has too many intervening variables for it to be tested like a chemical mixture because prayer is based in relationship. And your wife doesn't react like a chemical reaction or a, or a, a physical, you know, a, a reaction between certain solids that give you predictable 100% results for you know, for predictability in our world. Um, example number two, there's a caller uh, that had a significant amount of suffering in the last week or two weeks of her life. And I was trying, I went right for 2 Corinthians 12 to tell, show her how Paul mentions all these sacrifices and all these issues and all this suffering and persecution and hardship that he went through and how God was glorified through it. And she shouted at me, I'm not Paul. I didn't do what he did before I was saved, and I'm not looking to do what he did after. And I said, "You're really missing the point. Uh, it's not that each person gets the, you know, gets is, is going to get their taste of Paul based on what they. No, 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 no. Um, the idea here is that you can't just make a demand that God alleviate the suffering when He didn't do this with people that did far, far stronger kingdom work. In fact, He used it." Uh, the reality is that God often uses suffering as if, you know, in, in some pedagogical teaching terms, as a great heuristic device. We don't like it because we'd rather, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what teaching gets down to. You're either going to use the accumulated wisdom of the ages by people that have been down the road and avoid these sort of things, or you're going to hopefully learn through the hardship, or the hardship will break you. But... Uh, that was a really significant example of somebody disappointed with Christianity because they had a wrong, a wrong, they had wrongly calibrated their expectations to say, well, only if I'm going to do what Paul did before or after will I get that kind of suffering, and I, I, I deserve better because I didn't do that before, and I'm not looking to make that kind of impact after. So there's a, there's a, there's a hornet's nest of wrong assumptions and wrong conclusions going on in that statement in that conversation. Last, a, a colleague of mine was on call here at the church as well, and he got a call from a very frustrated woman that said, I'm just sick and tired of waiting on God to give me a husband. He should have given him given me one years ago after my uh, last boyfriend walked out. Um, when uh, my, my, my friend tried to console her and, and give her some thoughts to think about with regard to her wrong-headed assumption, she just got louder and angrier. God owes me a husband. He needs to give me one now. Do you not know how to pray for this? What kind of pastor are you? Um, which cemented a lot of things in our mind. Not only do we get the, we, we have wrong expectations of what Christianity is supposed to produce in us and when and how, and we have wrong uh, perspectives on prayer, but uh, he 
likely, I think he said a silent prayer for God protecting whoever was possibly going to be her husband from actually meeting this woman because she was so angry, miserable, and uh, caustic. So, uh, so again, we want to make sure the role of the affections are proper and that we put proper things in proper order. Let's look at a couple of scriptures here um, and look at some basic principles we can pull out that we may not see on our first pass. John 14, 1 through 3, do not let your hearts be troubled. Full stop there. We live in a world where there will be trouble. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have, <clears throat> would I, would ha, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. So again, hardship in this world, it's not going to be forever, but don't let your hearts be troubled. There's some part of what you can do in this Christian life and in this Christian walk that allows you to get that peace that surpasses understanding, where Paul says, in want and in bounty, I have found the secret of contentment. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. So you see that again, that wonderful dovetailing with Paul uh, as well. How about from the Old Testament, the crying prophet Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. So again, if you are by the stream, the natural things that come with that come with the threats for a flourishing green tree, a healthy tree, uh, again, like when heat comes, drought comes, there's no worry. You can still be fruitful even in the midst of that negativity if your source is in that being and in that power of that being that redeemed you and saved you. Listen to Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul here. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Change and time. Again, that foundational element, that true authentic change comes through and over time and in a process. And very rarely, if ever, is instantaneous. Psalm 18.3, in my distress I called on the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. And Psalm 118, not Psalm 18, 118, 5 and 6. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Bible is uber realistic right here in the middle of the Psalter. The prayer and psalm and praise book right in the middle of the Bible. These two lament, honest transparent lament passages. The Bible's uber-realistic about difficulty and hardship in this life, both prior to commitment to God and post-commitment to God. Listen to Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Change and time, again and again. Now, quickly, what's a, what's a, a common position people take up when they get disappointed with Christianity, when they are unhappy with it, when they feel dissatisfied or it's not, quote, working for them. Believe it or not, statistically, most don't turn to naturalism or atheism or a hard-lined empiricism or naturalism. This We're just, we're just matter in motions and the only thing that's real is different configurations of atoms. They usually shift to a New Age um, Eastern mystic framework. Um, 
they say they're they're spiritual, not religious. Uh, they give uh, to meditation, which has a I, I would say a superficial relaxation to it. There's something about focusing on something else and clearing your mind of the buzz that goes on with all the activities and responsibilities in a frenzied, hurried culture. But the reason people shift over there is they can they can there's a there's a really uh, in a, unattractive uh, ethos with atheism and naturalism, not just because of our history and and the way atheists have traditionally and historically been viewed as untrustworthy and uh, not, not only morally unzippered, but uh, people that lack common sense when they look around at the design features of the world. But you still can have all the benefits of saying there's more to reality than just matter. And you take away any of the traditional religious elements. Like when somebody says they're spiritual, not religious, what they mean is I've they've largely surgically removed, like the New Age does, removing unpalatable and non, non-attractive non elements uh, from Hinduism and Buddhism and, and you know, re, reframe them in the in, in a you know Western culture friendly format. That's what New Age is, just warmed over Hinduism and Buddhism fused together with Western sensibilities. But you get rid of all what I call the change catalysts, the most important parts uh, found in, in in true Christian obedience, repentance, accountability, um, confession, things like what to do, how to order and prioritize your life accountability, purpose, conviction, repentance, judgment, these are conspicuous and their absence leaves uh, quite a uh, quite a, a wake. Um, so this is this is it. you know the, the, the old the old adage traditional religion tells you what to do to change uh, in order to uh, get on a trajectory of improvement while spirituality tells you you're okay and in some ways you're perfect just the way you are and no one should tell you anything to the contrary. So in that sense, Eastern religion still gives you some benefit. It reduces any what I call character change catalysts uh, or catalysts for getting those those vital fruit of the spirit we see in Galatians. Um, but instead, they it, 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 it still gives you the benefit of saying there's some power out there that seems to be impersonal, non-volitional, doesn't have instructions or requirements or accountability, and people shouldn't either. Um, there's just like C.S. Lewis said, like a more like God's more like a book on a shelf that can be uh, taken off, perused, used, and then put back away, but not the <laughs> the hunter, the king, the father, uh, the warrior uh, at the heart of the universe, uh, relentlessly that comes after you and will not stop until you are uh, truly happy. Um, you know, Sunday school, this Sunday school class serves as a really decent example, or growth class is an example of this. The, the difference between, that this can help in a discussion as well, the difference between duty and desire. Um, some of you come to this class out of duty. This is just what a good Christian does <laughs> before they go to the main deployment church service. You go to Sunday school. You, you commit to that kind of discipleship on a Sunday, on a Sabbath. Um, but some come out of desire. Uh, some come because this I really get something out of this class that the, this is, this helps in my evangelism. It helps me work through in my mind um, things I have attempted through the week or I'm attempting in my life. Uh, it, it fills in the blanks of things that either can't or won't be, or most of the time can't be covered in the quote you know the attention and verbal real estate, the very limited real estate you have in a in a traditional sermon. So some of you have a complex mix of both, but think of a marriage analogy here. What you want is somebody that delights or really uh, finds their their spouse attractive, not just body, but body and soul, mind and spirit. 
um, if somebody comes to a husband and interviews him and says, "What do you? What do you? Why do you love your wife?" and he says, "She's just really good at the role of wife. Really, really good." Now that's a compliment. That's a bona fide compliment and a rare one in this day and age. But even the wife would feel somewhat shortchanged, and that wouldn't be part of her fallen nature. It needs to be something along the lines of, "You know what? I I find who she is, her identity, how she carries herself, something that's." connected to intimately to truth beauty and goodness and varying levels and i i find myself wanting to get closer and closer to that so that that can affect me uh more consistently and powerfully and those duties flow out of that the duties the excellence and the the evaluation and the and the excellence and duties there flow out of that scenario if that's what you want so remember keep this crucial distinction in place christianity is worthy of belief because it's true uh, it's worthy of belief because it's, it matches reality. And if it does match reality, then it will in some ways work with all the qualifiers, caveats, and biblical uh, um, uh, seatbelt or qualifiers or you know uh, traffic lights in place. Um, understanding that even people that aren't Christian understand that living in connection and concert with the truth does not always produce immediate happiness, satisfaction, or what our culture calls the good feels. You know, as a matter of fact, the Bible's pretty clear about this. Following truth is often costly and difficult, especially in the initial stages, especially when you've decided to live by lies. And truth, living by truth is better, even if it makes life harder. Even if it makes life harder. You think of uh, the, the situation in the movie The Matrix, the theatrical release of the movie The Matrix, the original. There was a gentleman as part of the team that came out that said life is so gritty, difficult, and hard in the real world that I want to be back in the world of lies and illusion. So he made a deal. I don't know how you make a deal with an AI, how they're choosing, but made a deal with the machines to go back in and to have the blissfully ignorant life again. But the whole movie is predicated on it's better to be out and live by truth with real consequences and meaningful decisions than in a, a life behind a veil of illusion where none of your actions make any difference at all and everything is, is, uh, is an illusion and, and doesn't, is not really purposeful at all because it doesn't really match reality. Another way of getting at this is one of my uh, favorite uh, and arguably one of the brightest Christians on the planet, one of my favorite Christian teachers and professors out there, seminary professor of philosophy, uh, distinguished professor of philosophy, J.P. Moreland, at Talbot School and uh, uh, the Talbot Seminary in the Biola, uh, uh, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, an incredible um, uh, evangelist, an incredible philosopher, again, uh, voted even by his secular peers, one of the top 50 most influential philosophers in, uh, in the Western world. So he's got a, uh, an, an, an illustration he gives when somebody actually challenges this old adage that it's truth's important. And they say, well, why not just what works or what outcomes I desire is the most important? Why not just what works for me? Isn't that more important? And of course, this all flows into how you're defining happiness, what works for you, what you're, what you're putting in front of you if you're, you know, if you're putting yourself in, under the slavery of an idol. Um, but he uses a, what's called the wand mug illustration, wand mug, and I wanted to share it with you. Um, he said, imagine Juan Muggs, a child that by the time he gets to kindergarten, he's remarkably unintelligent by way of his upbringing and, and possibly some issue in his, in his physical makeup. He's just really, really dumb, but the teachers don't want to hurt his feelings and they want him to feel good. So they, they fool all the students and all the, the kindergarten teachers to all go along with this, this false reality that Juan Muggs really deeply brilliant. 
He shouldn't even be in kindergarten. He's so brilliant. And this continues on through grade school, through middle school and high school. And all the teachers are in on it. Some of the students are in on it. And Juan Mug believes he is a 4-0 student. The teachers in high school contact uh, Stanford or UCLA or Yale or Harvard and convince them to take them on and say, hey, keep, the, keep, keep this going. Now, again, this is an implausible illustration. It's hypothetical. But let's say Juan Mug matriculates to, to Princeton. And at Princeton, his professors, he gets like a two out of a hundred and they instead put a hundred on his paper and say, Juan Mug, you're better than all the teaching assistants, you're better than me. Would you mind lecturing us up here? And Juan Mug gets up there and says absolute nonsense, just utter nonsense. It has nothing to do with reality. It doesn't connect at all. But the students are all given a, a, a signal and a certain amount of money to keep the secret and they all applause. They all applaud whenever Juan Mug gets finished. The teacher says, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. Juan Mug graduates with a 4-0. All the teachers are in on it. And then he decides he's going to go uh, help the president of the United States. He does this. He um, gets a job at NASA. NASA gets called by Princeton, the, the, the faculty at Princeton, and they convince him, go on, you know, say this sort of thing. And so he lives a distinguished career where he's going around and lecturing on uh, uh, astrophysics and aerospace, uh, aeronautics all the time. Everything, nearly everything he says is complete garbage. It doesn't match reality at all. But he is fabulously well-respected and paid. Now, if you're honest with yourself, nobody wants to be Juan Mug. Nobody does. Not And, and, and arguably, Juan Mug's beliefs are working for him. Are working for him. He would be devastated if he knew this massive conspiracy to keep him, uh, not only keep him ignorant, but keep him happily ignorant. Um, if you understand that intuitively, you get that what the Bible says, that worship me in spirit, my worshipers worship me in spirit and in truth, and why that's so important, that it's not just what works or what gets you your desired outcome, but it's what's true. And sometimes living in concert with truth, in fact, most of the time following truth is often costly and difficult, especially in the initial stages when you've lived by lies hitherto. So again, the Christian faith is not true because it works, it works because it's true. Uh, if you've ever raised your family with any real effort, like I have at Christian Principles, uh, I, well, of course you must believe there's better outcomes, that hierarchies are real, and there are better things and worse things. There are better outcomes and worse outcomes. Even if doing this with your family is harder and harder in our culture, in the immediate, you still keep at it. Uh, even if you don't see immediate results, or even if you have some sort of devastating eventuality, it's hard to figure, how do I add all this up? Do, can I possibly add up and, and get right all the blessings and see there's some sort of equation that doesn't equal the heartache right now? Um, again, being, being connected to a strong sense of gratitude is going to be really important, and that's one of the meta-themes in the Bible. So um, another thing that's part of a, a, a common grace, general revelation perspective that's been a feature of almost any superculture in human history is the delay of gratification for a greater good. Again, this is painfully apparent in, in even, uh, uh, in even uh, non-godly polytheistic or, or non-godly cultures. So uh, remember to differentiate. It helps to differentiate the differences between, the, between different types of satisfactions and happinesses. Uh, the ancient view of happiness shared by Maimonides, Solomon, David, Moses... Um, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle was very, very different than the modern view. The modern view is more sensate. That means it's connected to something, uh, your circumstances, what's happening in the immediate. How does it feel at this moment? 
uh, think something like you getting a temporary transient high from your team winning of a game that doesn't directly affect your life at all, or you having a bite of a Krispy Kreme donut. Um, that's more modern transient happiness. And so people attempt to stack those up like hedonist into us into a row of them and minimize the amount of negative possibilities. But the ancient view of happiness called eudaimonia was very, very different. It was a whole life embracing happiness or what, you know, we sometimes differentiate between happiness, happenstance based on circumstance and joy. Um, the ancient view of happiness, eudaimonia, could account for or embrace certain types of, of suffering. Um, it, it affected your character. It, it affected other people. It wasn't so connected to your immediate sensate, how it feels the moment, physically and mentally, circumstance. Um, there's a freedom from idols. That There's a freedom that happens when you get out from under an idol that you thought would deliver and doesn't. Um, you, you get yourself away from... the. the, the there's a... A, a, a prodigious amount of literature about people that have gotten to the top and found there's nothing there, achieved everything they ever wanted in life and realized there's nothing to it if there's nothing above it. Uh, we've talked again about God constraining our freedoms. Freedom is complex. There's certain constraints or laws. God's law allows for fuller, deeper, deeper satisfactions and happiness in the future. I gave the piano and I think you could use a marriage example. You constrain your schedule and constrain a lot of your restrict certain numbers of activities so that you have the possibility of brand new, deeper satisfactions in the future. Um, but again, God's laws match our nature and match his omniscience for us and our design. So his constraints match our nature and therefore do lead to these sort of things instead of just ones with free-floating desires of ours. I think we'd want to finish by saying this, Christianity is better. It has a better plan and leads to better outcomes. Even with all the qualifiers in place for persecution being there, suffering being there, us being the number one religion with regard to suffering and how to integrate suffering into our lives, Christianity offers a meaning suffering can never take away, if you're doing it correctly, a satisfaction not based on circumstances, a freedom that doesn't destroy love. Again, it's not the absence of constraints, but the liberating constraints that lead to liberation in the future. An identity that doesn't crush you or exclude others necessarily. It's Again, it's not an achieved identity, but a received one from God through grace. Um, a hope that's real and not merely empty fictional optimism. It doesn't have to be tranquilized by the trivial, i.e. Bertrand Russell and all these other European atheists. At the end of the day, Christianity has unparalleled resources for all the things we all want in Jesus Christ. So I think that's one way of looking at it. And, and also taking in all the wisdom that the Bible has about the qualifiers of these sort of things. Um, again, just to remember, you know, freedom is a complex concept. Some constraints lead to more liberating, deeper satisfactions in the future. Gratitude's got to be paramount. Uh, we, if something, if these particular truths are true, it will lead to not a blissful happiness in, until this on the other side of eternity, but lead to a a a a suffering and evil resisting or resilient um, happiness and satisfaction that can incorporate those things and not get devastated and, and, and brought to the brink of despair by them. Uh, you're going to have this sort of thing. And knowing what works, truth is more important uh, and sometimes more difficult than just what works. And what works needs to be teased out to see if it, it, it matches reality, it matches general revelation and special revelation because those are really, really important concepts as well. So thank you for your time. Sorry it's gone over just a little bit, but I hope this has been helpful as to how to interact with somebody who says Christianity just isn't working for me. 
So we hope to see you uh, next time we do our Holy Spirit series.